Paddock Pass Podcast 2020. We are here with another jam-packed episode full of MotoGP content. Hello there, my name is Neil Morris and I'm delighted to say that uh, we have a podcast from the Styrian Grand Prix in one of the craziest years in memory. Well, we have another pretty crazy weekend to uh, dissect and to get through and uh, well let's see how this goes my name is neil morrison as i just mentioned and i'm delighted to say i've got a gentleman that resides in the netherlands in northern europe his name is mr david emmett his website is coldmotomatters.com hello david hello neil from a very wet and a very windy uh, the netherlands have you caught your breath after sunday in fact, let me ask you another question. How many times have you rewatched the final lap from Sunday? Because I think I've watched it maybe 25 to 30 times. Um, yeah, a few times. Certainly a few times. I mean, the other th- the, the, the great thing is that um, uh, on MotoGP.com, they have the they have the onboard from Polish Bargo's bike, and that is really, really well worth watching. Also, not just uh, the actual finish, but also the cooldown lap. That is really that is absolutely fascinating because you can see just how gutted he is, and um, uh, you can see Alicia Spargo, his brother, come up and go. What happened? What happened? So that was uh, it's absolutely well worth doing. So if you if you have the MotoGP.com video pass, uh, grab that. Uh, watch the end of the race from uh, the the perspective of Paul Espargaro's onboard camera. Yes, yes, absolutely do that. I, I can't recommend that highly enough. Now, David, we have our fourth winner in five races. Our third first time winner in five races we had what we've had 11 different podium finishes so far this year uh we have a title race with what i was checking today 10 riders within 25 points yeah i mean basically once you get behind so the championship is a fairly close uh, once you get, you've got uh, Fabio Quattro and Andrea Devicioso within three points, and then there's uh, an eleven-point gap. Uh, but then from Jack Miller in th- in third, back to what is it? Well, Miguel Oliveira in ninth with thirteen more points. So it's, I mean, there is literally it's almost nothing between most of the championship. It's I don't think it's ever been quite this wide open. Yeah, I, I'm struggling to remember um, even some of the more crazy random open years that i've experienced have watched in my lifetime uh i can't or i'm feeling to kind of grasp one which was as odd and as random as this another weekend when results didn't quite turn themselves inside out but what well, we had two ktms on the podium we had miguel Oliveira winning his first moto gp race portugal's first moto gp race when uh, portugal's first moto gp podium uh two ktms on the podium did i mention that already jack miller second i mean this is uh just another pretty wild crazy uh outing um what what happened how did this happen you really have to go back to the to the red flag um which happened when maverick vinales uh, uh crashed but we'll talk about that a little bit later but because before even before the red flag it was joan mir who seemed to be getting away and on his way to winning his first uh race i think the combination of having two races back to back at uh, at the same circuit obviously mark marquez being away and we should talk about you know much more about mark marquez later on there's just so many variables in this uh in this championship and everything is so 
close and people people's fortunes are up and down every weekend so you know you really you really have no idea what is going on it's not a sensible championship at all it certainly isn't and whenever the red flag did come out i mean we had Dranmere first takanaki gami second jack miller third and then really it looked like the uh, the ktms were were struggling to almost um, refine that form that they were showing the previous week paul spargo certainly uh, miguel Oliveira was fighting with brad binder back in seventh and eighth i mean did really look like they were on for a, a podium never mind a race win um but that second race was just well wow, just wild uh, 12 lap sprint race i mean that usually makes things a bit juicy a bit exciting how did joanne Mir not get back towards the front during the restart and what brought the ktms back into the game the trouble with restarted races is that any advantage which people have bought, uh, built up is gone. I mean, Chuan Mir had uh, something like a two and a half second advantage uh, when the race was actually red flagged um, and didn't look like he was being threatened in any way. But if you look at what what happened there, Chuan Mir didn't have another uh, front tyre, I think. Um, he had something like 20 laps on his on his front tyre. It was the medium tyre. That was the only front tyre that worked for him. Didn't have a spare. Had to use an old one. And he just never found the pace again in, in the second hub or didn't have the same advantage because he still managed to uh, to, to, to finish I think fourth and very very close behind uh, behind the leaders close enough to watch Polis Bargro go wide and get upset about him not being given a penalty which again we'll talk about later on there's so much to talk about but yeah this is the, the big difference was the people who got they didn't quite get their tyres right in the first race got a chance to get it uh, to, to recover and the People who did get their tyres right in the first uh, uh, in the, um, uh, in the in the first race or in the second race, you know, they they had a chance to actually win. Um, it it just threw it it threw everyone a little bit of a curveball. Yeah, and obviously we know that the the Red Bull Ring is one of the the more punishing tracks in terms of fuel consumption to certain bikes and certain factories. A twelve lap sprint race meant I think the Ducatis and the KTM's didn't have to regulate their power just as much as they had to in the first race so they could just run it pretty much outright yeah exactly i mean they you know they, they're just wide open they're not having to worry about uh, uh about fuel consumption anymore because you know if they wanted to they could put the full 22 liters in i don't think they could have actually physically be able to manage to burn that much fuel in the uh in 12 laps but uh they, they could certainly put enough in to not have to worry about it and just you know turn the wick up and let those horses um have a canter yeah no, no there's a couple of things to talk about um with regards to the last lap now first of all uh miguel Oliveira, did you have him down for let's be honest uh finishing on the podium before this year started a lot of it just depended on the uh on how strong the ktm was obviously the ktm is i mean i think you can you can make a case right now that the ktm and the suzuki are the two strongest bikes on the grid um they seem to be the most complete and uh the the most competitive so that that, that was a big factor but it was clear at the end of last year and uh during testing as well that miguel Oliveira had made a step forward had got a lot better than um, uh, than last year and obviously last year because of the shoulder incident, the um, getting taken out by Joan Zarco at uh, Silverstone, that made that I think made a big difference. It sort of hid his results a little bit. His results were overshadowed by uh, by that. And um, yeah, I mean, it was clear that Oliveira is was talented, but uh, I mean, I would have maybe put money on him getting a podium, but I definitely wouldn't have put money on him getting a win. Yeah, okay. Well, you're a, a braver man than I did because I didn't have Oliveira anywhere near a race win this year. Probably didn't even have him near a podium if I was 
looking at testing, to be honest, because I spoke to him in Qatar and yeah, it was clear the KTM had made a step forward, but Oliveira was far from giving out signals that he was ready to to be as strong as he has been. And it isn't just been at this weekend. I mean, we saw it. Hereti qualified in the second row, I think, before being taken out by Brad Binder. Uh, he had the pace for the podium at Bernou. You know, this wasn't necessarily a, a bolt from the blue. It was a you know, he's been there in the top six, there or thereabouts since the start of the year. So uh, super, super impressive stuff from him. Uh, the second thing about the last lap I wanted to ask you, uh, was this another example of Paul Espargro's hot-headedness maybe being a determining factor in the result? Well, a little bit, but also Neil Hodgson, I think on the BT Sport commentary, pointed out that um, the team showed him plus zero on his board at the beginning of the last lap. And that made him ride more defensively than he would, might have otherwise if it had had, you know, plus 0.3 or whatever uh, to show that he had a little bit of a gap. And you really saw it on the entrance to turn three because uh, Espargo basically parked it in turn three. And if Jack Miller had been right up his uh, behind, uh, right up his tail, then that would have made sense and that would have given him an advantage. But because uh, Miller was, I don't know, maybe 15, 10, 15, 25 bike less, uh, lengths further back, when Espargaro parked it on a defensive line through turn three, that allowed Miller to catch right up and um, carry some speed through turn three and then uh, some drive out of three towards four and uh, it really gave him an opportunity to to attack. So I th that, I think, was not um, down to Espargaro's hot-headedness. I think you could say that the, the, the uh, Paul Espargaro definitely did make one mistake and the one mistake was when uh, Miller passed him back into turn 10, the final corner. Um, he stayed where he was and he didn't do what we saw Andrea Dovizioso do with Mark Marquez, what, two, three years ago, uh, which is let him, you know, say, sure, no, go ahead, break a little bit earlier, let, uh, let Miller fly past and then cut back inside um, uh, away to the line, exactly as we saw Miguel Oliveira do, really. And I think uh, Espargaro could would have had a much better chance of winning if it had um, if it had done that but no he he was too focused on trying to beat Miller and not yeah, not using his head so maybe there's a little bit I think sort of it's you know should we say 30% poll and 70% uh, 70% his team yeah I mean have we ever seen someone go into the final turn on the outside at the Red Bull ring and come out better I don't think we ever have mm, let's be honest no it it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. However, I mean, I think that would be uh, nitpicking uh, just ever so slightly, uh, because it was a, it was a pretty good pretty good ride from Paul Espargo, a pretty good recovery ride as well after having some difficulties uh, in the first part of the race. The third thing I wanted to ask you about, not just the last lap but this race, the KTM. Is it not the best bike on the grid? I think you can make a case that it is. Uh, like I said, I think it's between the KTM and the Suzuki. Uh, the KTM has all of the advantages of the V4, uh, but struggles less than the Honda and the uh, Ducati with the with the new rear tire. You know that I think it helps to a certain extent that this is a completely new bike and they've or a you know a, a much newer bike and they've got a completely new chassis this year um so it's been focused much more on the uh, uh, on the new mission uh, on the new michelin so you know they're not com as confused by old data so yeah you, you can say it's got the advantage it's a really really 
quick and powerful bike that much is also clear uh, and it does all the right things you know it turns it brakes it steers um, and it gets decent drive out corners the, the suzuki is the bike the yamaha ought to be um it has it's a down on power compared to the v4s but only a bit and it really makes up in acceleration it has fantastic drive out corners and that's where it's a uh, uh, that's where its strong point is and where where it's really really strong is you know its maneuverability it can still turn on a six pumps it can it's so agile it's just unbelievable to me i think the suzuki you could make the case for the suzuki in that it's it has a lot of uh, strengths and it has a lot of strengths and no real weaknesses you know it keeps all of its strengths it does some things better than others but it doesn't have to sacrifice anything to do the uh, uh, to do the more difficult things or the things which would go against its nature. Whereas the KTM is perhaps sort of slightly less out of balance, but its advantages are uh, sort of outweigh its disadvantages. But um, you, Neil, how do you see it? I mean, you know, what about the Ducati? What about the Yamaha? Yeah, it's it's such a strange one, Dave. Uh, like if you had asked me at Hareth, I would have said, "Oh, the Yamaha clearly is the best bike because Hareth is always a pretty good litmus test uh, as to where the bikes stand on the." calendar however Yamaha were just completely lost uh, I'll come on to this a bit later uh, at the Red Bull ring but it, it's clear that the, the top speed deficit that they have now in such a competitive field I mean you can't you just can't be given away 10 kilometers per hour on every straight there is so that is Yes, they can make that back up in the corners, but still, I think um, that's too much to be given away in today's version of MotoGP. Um, so, yes, I would I would agree with you in that. Uh, yeah, the Suzuki looks really, really good for them to be fighting two weeks running. We could have had two Suzuki winners, basically, if things had turned out differently. Rins last week, Mir last weekend. Um I think that's that's saying quite a lot, and uh, yeah, the KTM. I mean, it's it's just incredible. And one of the interesting things we heard last weekend was Andrea Davizioso talking about the the KTM, saying you know, Paul Espargaro almost risks his life every time he steps on it. He's that aggressive. He said Brad Bender rides the thing like a Moto2 machine and Miguel Oliveira is quite smooth by comparison to both of them. So you have three pretty different riding styles, yet they're all working and they're all getting pretty good results. Exactly. Two wins and a podium with three very different riding styles on the same bike. Yeah, which is a sign of a very, very good bike as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I would, I would tend to agree that it's maybe between those two. But the KTM, I would say, is maybe just, maybe just in front. But... You know, we could get to Mizano and say something completely different. Um, so, yeah, yeah, pretty crazy. Um, so, outstanding final lap. Uh, three riders, or four riders, I think, within um, six or seven tenths of a second by the checkered flag. Um, you could cover them with a blanket, basically. It's been crazy stuff, David. It's been absolutely mental. We've got 35 points just looking at the championship here, covering the first 10 riders. Things are completely wild and completely open. Is this just because of Mark Marquez's absence that we've got such a wild, crazy, unpredictable thing in MotoGP at the moment? Yeah, I mean, that is definitely one factor because obviously a fit and healthy Mark Marquez would um, have a major impact on the on the championship because he would be taking points everywhere. He'd be, I mean, I don't know, I don't know whether he'd be winning five races, but um, he would certainly have been sort of in the mix in five races. Uh, Again, then we might have a better idea of just what state the Yamaha, or sorry, the the, the Honda is in. 
Uh, on the other hand, you might say the Honda, the fact that the Honda spat him off suggests that the Honda is not in very good shape. Uh, so, yeah, th- these are sort of hypotheticals which are always difficult to, to, um, to answer. But the fact that Mark isn't there means that everyone suddenly really realises, OK, yeah, I, I can win this. I'm in with a chance. And so that sort of gets, uh, gets the juices going. And we have uh, much, much more, uh, you know, a, a much more balanced field, I think. The bikes are much closer together. Obviously, like, uh, as we were saying, the KTM and the Suzuki are really, really strong. Uh, the Ducati still has massive um, horsepower. And when it can get drive uh, at the right track, it's really, really hard to beat. Uh, the Yamahas, under the right circumstances, um, you know, anywhere where you have to carry a lot of corner speed and you can use that corner speed to get some drive, um, the Yamahas can be competitive. So it's just, it's just really, really wide open. And we have just the talent. There's just the, you know, the, the talent in the class is really exciting. There's a lot of young slash youngish riders who are starting to come into their own. Yeah, I agree with that, absolutely. Yeah, we mentioned about uh, KTM and Suzuki taking big steps forward with their bikes this year. I mean, Aprilia, not to the same extent, but you could even say Aprilia has made a, a pretty significant step forward with their bike. It's just by comparison, it's not as much. I was looking at, at this a little bit earlier today, and I mean, if you look at um, the combined free practice standings after FP3, which obviously um, define who is going to be going into Q2 automatically. And there's obviously usually a bit of a shootout at the end of FP3 to determine those those places. The biggest gap between first and 10th in the combined standings we've had all year is 0.4 seconds. I mean, so it's pretty crazy. Like going back to Brno, it was 0.25 separate in the first 10. You know, that, that's like you click your fingers and yeah, that's those bikes crossing the line yeah and the other the other thing is it becomes it makes uh, mistakes really 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 expensive i mean it really penalizes mistakes if you you know run wide if you're on a hot lap and you run just a little bit wide and you lose maybe a tenth of a second or even uh five hundredths of a second all of a sudden you're no longer six you're 12th and uh, fighting for you know stuck in q1 Exactly, yeah, and then that can just have a bit of a, a roll-on effect for the rest of the weekend. Um, but yeah, uh, pretty wild times. I mean, this is pretty open going back in history. Guess 2016 was was quite open the year that we switched from Bridgestone control tires to Michelin control tires. But even then, David, we had Marquez as the the leader seal, and then there wasn't really a time during the year where you thought, well, yeah, Marquez is going to completely mess this up. Uh, there was maybe only two or three guys could realistically uh, say for the title. But this year, I think it's, I don't know, going back to maybe 2000 after Duna just retired. Rossi was a rookie. That was a pretty wide open year. Eight different winners. I would say that, that, that you'd have to go back, what, 20 years for it to be like this? The two years that I was thinking of are, are 2000, as you say, after after Dewan retires. Um, uh, it becomes really, really wide open. Um, and then 2006 as well, where, the you know, going into the championship, it was, you know, Rossi was on a roll. It was going to be six in a row. But the first few races were so insane that, again, it was really, it was really, really open. We were at, uh, we were at Barcelona thinking, you know, is this going to be Ducati's year? Is, is Loris Capi Rossi going to win it? Uh, Nicky Hayden was competitive 
negative. Um, uh, Rossi was up and down. You, you kept on expecting him to come back, and uh, but he kept on building up a points de- deficits. The Suzuki was really strong. So yeah, I mean, it, this is like 2006 on steroids, I reckon. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, take Valentino Rossi out of it, and this is like 2006 all over again. Um, yeah. Okay. Interesting. So crazy stuff at the front of uh, of MotoGP at the moment. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, insane stuff from the Red Bull ring and uh, well if you haven't seen it uh, where have you been and go straight to YouTube and watch that final lap because I don't think there's been a final lap uh, as uh, as fun as that that I can recall in well the last couple of years for sure um, so we've talked a little bit about the guys on the podium we've talked about KTM uh, talked about Suzuki as well um, now let's turn to probably the biggest losers of the weekend it was a disaster for Yamaha I mean uh, the Austrian Grand Prix, Austria 1, as we could call it, was pretty bad. Uh, however, Valentino Rossi did finish 5th, which wasn't an absolutely awful result. But here we had Rossi ninth, the best of the Yamahas. Uh, Fabio Quartararo, the championship leader, was 13th. Franco Morbidelli was 15th. And Maverick Vinales had to jump from his bike at uh, over 200 kilometers per hour. I think that can be classified as a pretty bad day. In fact, the worst day... Yeah, since 2007 I believe so like a genuinely horrible time um, but let's first of all talk about Vinales David because that was that was scary first of all um, and what, what was the cause of that first of all what you have to say about it is it it really demonstrated the mind of a racer how you have to think as a racer because as soon as he realized he had no brakes he didn't hesitate you know, a millisecond. He was just leaping off of that bike. And, and he jumped off the bike at 230 kilometers an hour. Now, I don't know if you've ever been on a motorcycle at 230 kilometers an hour. I think I did it once. And um, things were happening very fast. And I certainly wasn't thinking about jumping off of it in any way, shape or form. What was that when you were playing the uh, official MotoGP video game? No, no, no. This was uh, this was on a uh, Yamaha RD three fifty YPBS. I shall uh, I shall have you know. It was in Germany on a on a on a uh, uh, on a motorway where it was completely legal and not somewhere where it was uh, where it was legal. Um, just uh, a note for my lawyers there. Having the princess mice to, to jump off, but it, to an extent, it was his own fault because I mean the Yamahas were having massive problems with braking all of the time. Now Valentino Rossi explained that part of that is because um, they couldn't take advantage of their corner speed anyway. Franco Morbidelli described the, the Red Bull ring as, you know, draw a corner, which is the worst kind of corner for uh, the Yamaha, uh, put 10 of them in a circuit, and that's the Red Bull ring. The, the Yamahas didn't have anything that they could use. They didn't have any weapons that they could use. Um, so they were trying, having to make up a lot on uh, on the brakes. They were suffering with brake overheating problems. I mean, there were a lot of people who were suffering brake overheating problems, even the Hondas, and uh, uh, were also having one or two issues. But they were managing it. Also because the Hondas and the other factories were all using this brand new or this new 2020 uh, Brembo brake caliber. The uh, Yamahas, well, they did. They last weekend they weren't using it. Um, I think Valentino Rossi switched uh, for the uh, uh, switched to the 2020 cal- uh, caliber for this uh, for, for this weekend and did okay with it. Um, the others were using 
the, the, in 2019, there were two different kinds of calipers. There was a, uh, a high mass and a low mass one. Uh, but Maverick Vinales was losing the, the, the low mass caliper. Now, a high mass means there's more material and so it can store and release energy uh, more efficiently. Um, so it means that the, the brake fluid doesn't overheat. It means, you know, you, you've got a better chance of, of the brakes actually working. Um, Maverick Vinales doesn't like the feel of it. And the thing is, like, feel is everything to a rider. Riders are racing. Ironically, racing a MotoGP machine is about uh, very, very small, subtle movements. It's those finesses which make the difference. I think uh, um, I once asked Nicky Hayden about Casey Stoner, and he said, like, your Stoner's strength was in the last 9% of the throttle, that he was so subtle in his movements. He was so able to control that last little bit of, uh, um, of throttle, and that was why he was so good. And it's the same with braking. You want something, You when you squeeze the brakes, you understand how the brake is reacting how the caliper is reacting how the um uh, you know how the front tire is is reacting you want to be able to understand what's going on with the tire and with the wheel and how much you're braking um when you change a caliper uh, or a master cylinder or any other part of the uh, of the brake uh, the brake system it's confusing because you have to relearn a few skills you have to understand this new situation this is one of the reasons why we've also seen riders uh, struggle a little bit when they are or or hesitate rather um, about switching to a thumb brake or switching to, to to these finger brakes for the rear brake as well it's not even about um, the, the fact that you're having to use your hand or your uh, or your thumb it's also about just understanding you know when you squeeze the brake like this how much does that what what effect does that have at the rear they they understand the brake so often with the rear brake that they completely it, it becomes a completely natural and it's it's the same for maverick maverick is uh he's so natural with the 2019 calipers he so he, he completely understands how to do it so he doesn't want to switch but obviously he should have because the brakes simply failed and he had to jump off the bike and his bike barreled into turn one hit an air fence and caught fire and he might even have lost an engine but we'll have to we'll have to wait and see yeah, no, this wasn't uh, this wasn't the first time that Maverick had issues in the race. Uh, was it? I, I saw a couple of the Suzuki guys when they were speaking in Spanish. Uh, the Spanish part of their debriefs were were being quite critical towards Maverick because I think it was lap three or so. Maverick was actually running a pretty good pace uh, inside the top six. Um, didn't lo lose a lot of positions at the start of the race, like we saw uh, at Austria one. Um, was actually holding his own and um, yeah was was definitely the quickest of the Yamahas uh, but then he had an issue going into turn four actually sat up and raised his hand uh, and then kept going I mean the, the warning signs were there I think he had his first big braking issue at that moment uh, the warning signs were there right yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, you could if you look at his pace, it's actually quite interesting seeing his uh, uh, go and check the analysis PDFs because he's doing sort of he does a few laps of twenty fours and then he does a twenty five and a twenty six, which is you know two nearly three seconds a lap slower because he just can't he just can't break and he has to let his brake uh, cool down. And then the brakes cool down a little bit and they come back to him and he can up his pace and he's doing twenty fours again. Uh, he said himself afterwards that um, you know he realised that he had a problem, um, but then the brakes came back to him so. He, he thought he'd push on again he said you know i'm not going to give up i'm not going to stop there was no way i was going to stop i wanted to um, I, I wanted to do this race which was clearly the wrong decision and you could argue that the suzuki riders have a point that he should have stopped that he should have um uh, you know he should have been made to pull in and uh, and, and and do something else you know and, and retire but the, the the trouble is 
it's impossible for race direction to diagnose the severity of his breaking of, of Maris' breaking problems just by looking at it. You can't tell that without either being on the bike or looking at the uh, you know looking at the data, and you don't get to see the data until until he pulls into the pit. So, I mean, in an ideal world, he would have been black flagged, but you can't black flag him because you've got no uh, you know you've got no grounds to black flag him. Uh, you don't know if he's making mistakes or if there's something else. It's um, uh, but yeah. Uh, if if Maverick had been sensible, he would have stopped, but he didn't, and he paid the price. Exactly, he certainly did. Um, now, what I find interesting watching the Yamaha this weekend, and indeed last weekend, was uh, you look at the the layout of the Red Bull Ring, and you have sectors one and two, which basically go from the start and finish straight to the exit of turn four, turn five. Then you have sector three, which is the two left handers, six and seven, and then the cut back right to it now the Suzuki's were excelling in sector three and sector four because we know that that's a, a very agile motorcycle that can turn very well keep a very tight line when it has to however we were seeing throughout free practice and qualifying that the MIs were losing a lot of time in sector three more than in the heavy accelerating and heavy braking zones which I mean, well, I find pretty crazy. Uh, I think um, Dorna's pit lane reporter, Simon Crafar, was speaking to Wilco Zielenberg at one point, and Zielenberg was saying, you know, ah, it's so difficult to explain. Ever since we first came here, and Jorge Lorenzo was the rider for Yamaha, we still had this issue. And I think he said it was something to do with, A, there's an uphill point. They're going uphill as they approach turn nine. And with the Yamaha being down in power relatively to the other bikes, that penalizes them. And then this heat-resistant rear tire that Michelin have to bring to this track because it's so so fast. Yeah, it doesn't quite have that excellent edge grip which Michelin, the Michelin rear this year does have. Um, so therefore, because they're losing time there, they had to try even harder to make up time elsewhere in the track because they couldn't bank on what would theoretically be a strong point for them uh, which I found you know quite interesting and maybe is another reason why they were having to do such mental things on the bricks the heat resistant rear tyre uh, which Michelin have to bring just to make the you know just to make the thing last because of the high high stresses on it it will work a little bit better on a high horsepower machine because it has to you know it has to be able to withstand this so maybe if uh, there's a Yamaha had you know, I don't know, five or ten horsepower more, uh, it would generate that little bit more heat into the tyre, which would give them a little bit more edge grip, um, which is maybe the difference between the Suzuki uh, uh, and the Yamaha there, that uh, the, the, the Suzuki can get the tyre to work just that little bit better because it can get a little bit more drive, it can get that little bit more heat into it. So, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it is, it, it, is, it is very odd. But like, as Morbidelli said, you know, the, the, these are just all ten corners are the wrong kind of corner for for Yamaha and they're having to try and make up everywhere and the the track was having none of it really it was not having any of it it certainly wasn't uh, certainly wasn't if your name is Fabio Quartararo as well um, I mean Quartararo was third at the Rebel Ring last year if he was uh, outstanding he was fantastic yet pretty sure from Friday I could watching him in his debrief I could understand or I knew that he was going to have a, a tough tough day on Sunday I knew just from how he was speaking and his body language and how he was expressing himself that this was going to be a, another really tough tough race I mean uh, breaking issues obviously were, were still apparent but 
what, what, what else was kind of going on with Cordero? Because he just was not the smiley, happy, relaxed guy that we saw at the start of the year. It makes you wonder whether the pressure is starting to get. His second year starts off two race wins, leading the championship very comfortably, beating his stable mate and uh, future teammate and the man expected to to be one of the favourites for the championship uh, very comfortably. Um, so I think that sort of sets your mind in a particular way. And then you get to Bruno, where things don't go the way that you had hoped. That makes things a lot more difficult because you're at a bumpy low grip track which doesn't work the way that the Yamaha needs to uh, uh, needs to work uh, and then you come to the to Austria you know the, the the track which doesn't suit the Yamaha at all um, but I think that again we're talking about the Suzuki and the KTMs and the step that they've made the Suzuki and the KTM have quite clearly improved to the extent that they've been able to get in front of the Yamaha and we had a Ducati and a Honda in front of um uh, in front of Quattararo next of last or yes, sorry, last year the Ducatis are better. The the, the Ducati is a is a strong bike as well. So it's just I think also the competition has been uh, has been raised up a notch. So it's it's a combination of lots of things. Again, uh, Yamaha's valve issues, which um, submitted a request to technical director Danny Aldrich to um, uh, allow them to open the uh, open the engines and uh, fit new valves because of what sounds like not not a manufacturing defect but uh, basically sort of valves that manufacturing slightly out of tolerance which was um, uh, causing them issues that that they withdrew that request after uh, the other factories all decided that all right yes no no no, we're we're happy to let you change it but uh, we're going to need a lot more information from you so can you send us uh, all of the drawings of your engines or whatever they asked for no doubt i mean if it would have been me i would have been making outrageous demands as well so uh, very uh, that was just smart strategical play by them because of these valves it sounds like they've had to reduce the revs uh, a little bit they've certainly they're certainly having to manage the power uh, much more carefully to not stress the valves um it might not even be uh, specifically just top to uh, you know just just the high revs it might be the way that they actually get to those revs which they've had to to change a little bit to just to take some of the some of the stress off of the valves all that is it's just really working against the yamaha and specifically at this track this is such a peculiar unique track um that it was always going to be it was always going to be a bit tough for, for yamaha but all of these circumstances mounted up and turned it into an outright disaster are they going to be in the running at Mizano? do you think Yes, 100%. Fabio Quattararo nearly won his first MotoGP race at, um, at Misano, and he fought Mark Marquez very, very hard. But he finished third at the Red Bull Ring last year. <laughs> you make a very good point, which immediately undermines my arguments, Neil. How very dare you? Misano doesn't, Misano been resurfaced. It's got good grip. It's got a lot of long corners. Um, it's got a couple of places with hard acceleration, uh, but it's also a place where you can carry corner speed. I mean, for example, onto the, onto the back straights, you can carry corner speed through there. You can actually sort of like get some, get some drive. That's going to, that's going to suit the Yamaha. So yeah, Yamaha has a lot more, uh, a lot more options. And I would certainly, I mean, I would expect them to be uh, in contention there. Certainly, have a much easier life. Again, it's it's uh, it's quite heavy on fuel consumption, which me uh, just because you're spending a lot of time in a low gear with uh, with full throttle. But it is still a 
a track which uh, plays much more to uh, to the Yamaha strengths. But then the Yamaha strengths are also the Suzuki strengths and uh, maybe the KTM strengths as well. So, um, and Ducati have got a. 12 gazillion laps around there so uh yeah it's it, it's going to be it, it, it's going to be interesting to see uh exactly what happens but you would have to give them a much better chance at uh, misano yeah you would have to i agree with you i was just playing devil's advocate um okay fantastic so we've covered yamaha shocking weekend for them shock shocking couple of weekends uh for them if we're being totally sincere uh time to move on and uh, we're going to talk about... Well, you know what, David? I'm going to let you decide. Do we talk about Mark Marquez first or do we talk about track limits first? I think we have to talk about Mark Marquez because it's... Uh, I mean, he is... Uh, he really is Banquo's ghost at the moment. He is the... He's, he's, He's the spectre at the feast. Um, he, you can't not talk about, or you can't talk about MotoGP and not mention Mark Marquez, no matter what you think of him. Because this was a weekend when we saw him for the first time give some public words uh, since his second operation, and yeah, he didn't give the impression that. Well, we, we we were told that he's going to be out for the next two or three months, but yeah, you you got the impression that this was not. Um, Let's say he's not he's not healing, and there's some there's some doubt there. Uh, before Bruno, it was like, you know, would he come back at Bruno? No, he won't come back at Bruno. Maybe Austria one, but probably Austria two. Didn't come back at either of those. Then it was, um, well, you know, Misano. He's got to be coming back at Misano. If you look at the championship, he's got to fancy his chances at actually getting back. Um, but then we heard just before the weekend sort of started, rumours started circulating that Mark was much more seriously injured than we had expected. Uh, then we got the strangest press release. I mean, you know, the typical Alberto Puj, Emilio Alzamora-led uh, kind of press release, which um, doesn't provide any information, but leaves masses of uh, room for everyone else to speculate and make things up and uh, just generally make the situation a lot worse than it need be. It was clear that, uh, that Mark has injured that he isn't recovering as well from his uh, from his play and then we started hearing rumors that um, he was quite upset with dr mir um because you know he'd ridden uh after mir had said well you can try uh but it's probably not a good idea but you can try uh so he rode and then when it went wrong it, it appears that um, he has been blaming uh you know dr mir for uh for giving him bad advice uh, which is why they've gone off and found looked for second opinions and the second opinions have all said you know pin your arm down don't move it for three months and then uh, we'll see after that there was also the photo of him sitting on his couch where it was just visible that he had a uh, a bandage on his right uh, on his right hand which we hadn't seen previously previously before he was just basically had his arm in a sling um so it would be i mean it was difficult to see in the he was also very carefully filmed sitting at home in front of his own laptop um to make sure his arm was just out of uh, view but i wouldn't be surprised if it was in a cast or something similar or he's got it at least immobilized uh, to, to stop him from uh, uh, from using it so uh yeah it, it looks like it's really bad and honestly the decision he's made is the most sensible one he's not going to win the championship this year um this way his arm should heal very fully and next year he will be back to complete fitness but um uh 
you know, this is one way of stopping him making the sort of stupid uh, choices he's done before. I think because I remember when he had his shoulder, uh, when he had his shoulder uh, fixed, you, I think you uh, spoke to, because you wrote, I remember you wrote a story about it and um, you spoke to his physio about it and they taken the wheels off of his, off of his uh, uh, dirt track bike or something to stop him from riding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They had to, uh, yeah, because I think in that, particular recovery process there were times where he was like i'm ready let's go and uh yeah his father and his physiotherapist were like um, well i'm sorry man yeah you, your, your bikes aren't set up so no you're gonna have to sit this out um however i get the impression that that was a recovery where there was maybe sometimes the the recovery was slower than anticipated um and he was able to to keep going to keep his head down but there was still Basically, he had the Sepang test at the start of last year to work towards, and he got there, and it was difficult, and there were some ups and downs, but generally, there was a, a feeling of progress. Whereas this, because of the secrecy, and because, yeah, they've been very careful with what they've been saying, you don't really understand just how bad it is. And, yeah, I mean, like, there were some rumors that his team don't want him to, to ride again this year. Then we heard another rumor, too, that Mark is planning to be back by Aragon. Um but it's clear that it's 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 pretty serious, and uh, yeah, the fact that he's going to be out for another two months—I mean, that's that's kind of uh, shocked us all. I think caught us all by surprise because we're used to this superhuman, bionic man who doesn't ever let um, biology get in the way of um, coming back and being competitive. And it's, yeah, it's the first time we've seen since, well, since his eye injury back in at the end of 2011, where, yeah, we're reminded that, yeah, this guy is actually human. And um, yeah, he does need to occasionally rest up. Um, it's interesting uh, working alongside Simon Crafer, obviously, um, ex-racer, guy who raced one races, one A race in MotoGP. Um, raced at the absolute top level um, about this and he was saying that even if Mark has come back from his previous shoulder injuries in crazy time and made unbelievable recoveries they do have a mental toll having three very serious operations well four now if you caught you count that he had two on his arm uh, if you have four of those in less than two years in one and a half years I mean, mentally having to, to pick yourself up again is incredibly tough. And even the most mentally bulletproof guy that there is currently racing in MotoGP at the moment, that's still going to have an effect. And having to, having to pick yourself up and go through the agonizing recovery process again when you've just come back from a serious operation on your shoulder. I mean, it's it's tough, man. It's really tough. Anyone that's had a, an injury which has required a long stint of rehabilitation could attest. Having to do another long stint straight after your initial one is going to take it out of you. Yeah, I mean, I'm reminded of uh, uh, Jorge Lorenzo, um, 2013, when he broke his uh, collarbone at um, Assen, uh, uh, flew back to Barcelona, had an operation, came back, raced on the Saturday, um, after, you know, a little bit more than 24 hours after surgery, um, raced through an incredible amount of pain, finished fifth. That cost him a lot of energy. Then we went to the Saxon ring. He fell off again, bent the plate in his, uh, in his collarbone, had to have uh, more surgery, uh, to get that plated again. That second injury, he carried that through 
all through 2013. He came back and he was competitive for 2013, but it took, it took so much energy out of him. He had a very bad 2014, really. Uh, he came to the Spang test quite overweight because he'd, um, uh, he, he had surgery. I think he had surgery to take to have a, some metal work removed. Um, he's, he's, his mind was just not there. And it wasn't until 2015 again when he came back fit, keen, motivated, and all the rest of it. So, you know, those incidents ha- took their toll as well and it had a, a really big uh, impact on um, uh, on Lorenzo. And Lorenzo is incredibly mentally tough as well. So I I, I can completely agree with Crayfire. I think you're absolutely right. This is going to take a uh, it's going to take a long time a long term toll on uh, Marquez. And I think he'll come back next year not as Mark Marquez is always, always has everything turned up to eleven. And I think it's going to be turned up to maybe ten and a little bit, which is going to be the difference between a superhuman rider and a very 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 good human rider. So uh, looking good for the championship anyway, but. Uh, um, it's difficult times ahead for him. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. Um, so we'll have to we'll have to keep our ears peeled for um, any developments in this. And uh, well, fingers crossed, we see Mark before the end of the season. Um, because well, to go a full year without seeing him finish a race um, would be yeah, would be would be a shame because it's it's spectacular. It's always spectacular when he's around, um, even if the championship is a lot more open now that uh, that he's not there. So we've talked a little bit about Marquez, Dave. Um, another big thing to come from this race weekend was track limits. Ooh. Sex, se- sexy topic time. Yeah, I mean, it was. It, it, it's not even just tracked limits. Really, it's about the. Uh, it's about the stewards. It's about the the, the 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 actions of the stewards in the past. I don't know what two, three year, two, two or three weeks. Really, um, it's been hard to uh, see them acting or to, to to find any consistency in their decisions. It was, uh, and the for example, we saw Joan Zarco punished for uh, the incident with Franco Morbidelli, but he didn't get a punishment until, I think, was it the Friday or the Saturday morning? They were taking such a very long time to actually make their minds up about these things. That doesn't really imbue trust. And then you get to the races and you see people, some people being punished for track limits while others aren't i mean uh, if you check jorge martin's uh, twitter uh, account at the moment it's basically one long litany of how he lost a position because uh, he exceeded track limits on um, uh, uh, on the final lap in the final corner and it is it is literally I don't know, maybe a half a centimetre or something. He's just got both wheels on that final little corner, a patch of green at the end of the uh, uh, at the end of the curb. So, so it's it's turn eight where Martin exceeded track limits. Just to be sure, Dave. Um, it's on the exit of turn eight where Martin uh, exceeded ah, track limits. Ah, it's eight. Ah, oh, right. I thought I thought it was the last corner. Yeah. Okay. Ah, yeah. Right. Okay. That suddenly makes that suddenly makes sense. But yes. It, he was um, he was exceeding track limits there, but then his his um, his Twitter feed is full of pictures of Marco of uh, Marco Bezzecchi having done a, what looks like exactly the same thing. Yeah, it, it it becomes so 
difficult to say. And then, of course, we had the final corner in the MotoGP race. Jack Miller um, dives up the inside of Polis Bargaro, and Polis Bargaro, as we said, makes the wrong choice and stays on the outside instead of cutting back inside. Um, uh, runs off the track, runs, I mean, ridiculously wide, um, way out onto the green, comes back onto the track just in front of Juan Mir and uh, finishes third and goes unpunished. And Juan Mir, obviously... Juan Mir is already fuming because he should have won the race uh, before it was red flagged. Uh, and then he's robbed of the podium after what, as far as he was concerned, was an absolutely outrageous uh, ex- exceeding of track limits and, and breaking of the rules. So it's hard. To, I mean, I, I think I, I think I understand the logic, but it's really hard to actually sort of sit down and figure it all out. And it's really a lot of these decisions do look a bit arbitrary and the riders themselves were really they seem to have lost faith completely in the stewards yes riders that often have very different viewpoints on certain matters were agreeing wholeheartedly that yeah they were just saying where is the consistency you you mentioned martin was penalized yet bezeki wasn't uh martin also gave examples of, of the final lap on in the moto three race tony arbolino tried to cut under celestino vietti at the final turn didn't work out he ran off went on the the, the green paint on the outside of the of the circuit uh in second place, crossed the line, wasn't wasn't penalised. Now, it was by a minuscule amount. However, Martin was also a very minuscule amount, uh, yet he was punished. Um, so that was interesting. That was, uh, I'm not quite sure what was going on exactly there. There were some examples from Jerez at the start of the year. Um, riders exceeding track limits coming out of turn five onto the back straight. I mean, we're talking about very, very fine margins here, but... If you're going to penalise Martin, if you're going to demote the race winner to second place, you have to be absolutely consistent with this. This can't just be a, yes, we're doing it to him. And then there's other examples which slip through the net. Yeah, I mean, the the, the idea that, or the the logic behind it should be that um, you can't use the you can't exact you can't exceed track limits and gain an advantage from it. Now, you could say that Jorge Martin ran wide because he was trying to push on to win the race. But you could also say that he had enough of a gap over Bezeki to be safe. Uh, and of course he was pushing hard because he wanted to, to to make sure he kept the gap, but the gap was big enough that he didn't really gain very much at all. Uh, and that Bezeki, who did more or less the same thing, um, uh, is exactly the same. Um in the same way, I mean, this is why, for example, Espargaro wasn't uh, uh, wasn't punished because there is, I mean, you can't say that he gained an advantage by uh, running that wide off of uh, off of the uh, the exit of turn ten and and coming back on again. It's not exa- exactly as if he went on to win the race. Yes, however, you could make the claim that he gained an advantage once he was pushed wide by lighting it up and gassing it as if it was a normal bit of track once he had sort of picked his bike up because even even though he was wildly outside the track limits, like way beyond the track limits, it, it's it's very difficult to define. I mean, when should he when should he be allowed to rejoin? Should he come back onto the track before he gasses it? I mean, it's it seems unsure to me. 
Well, yeah, I mean, this is something that certainly Casey Stoner's point about this was always like, as soon as you've got hard standing, uh, then people are going to use it. And this is something that uh, I think Valentina Rossi also said. You should be punished straight away, straight away if you go uh, on onto the Green Park track. Uh, because, you know, if you give the riders any, if you give them an inch, they will take, you know, a, about 17 light years. Um, they will use whatever they can, uh, bend the rules however they can to get an advantage. Um, so yeah, it, 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 it's understandable. They want to win. They want to win at almost any cost. So obviously they're going to do that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, Casey Stoner's point was if you have grass or gravel out of there, then you're not going to get an advantage because you can't. Now it's quite difficult at turn 10 because turn 10 was already, in, I think it was in 2016, the first time we went to the track. Um, the, it turned out that turn 10 was just too dangerous. Um, we, they were running too hot through there and there wasn't enough run out, run up on the outside. And so they narrowed it out by painting an extra curb on the inside, uh, which keeps the riders, forces the riders into a narrower line. Um, so you couldn't just rip that up and put gravel in because I think Formula One uses the uh, the, the proper full width of the track there. Um, and again, yeah, for car racing, for a lot of things. And it's much safer because if you do have gravel off the uh, on the outside, then people are going to fall off uh, into the gravel. And when they fall off in the gravel, then if they take a nasty bounce, um, if they just hit it at the wrong angle, uh, then you can suffer permanent permanent and severe injury as we have seen in the past with Wayne Rady and to an extent as we saw with uh, with J uh, Jack Miller as well I mean uh, Jack Miller fell off in I think FP3 uh, yeah um, and he just caught a, uh, an, a bit of an unfortunate sort of bounce with his shoulder and and we don't know whether he's actually torn a ligament or not, but uh, he had a very, very painful. He was left with a very, very painful shoulder, and and uh, you know possibly quite a severe, uh, severe injury. So yeah, there's these are all such fine margins, and that, that therein lies the dichotomy which race direction FIM stewards have to deal with. Because as you said, you put the gravel there on the edge of the track, and there's going to be more crashes. However, you arguably get more out of control riding, more over the limit riding uh, as a result of the concrete being there. And I think that's what David Silza was saying um, on Thursday before the race weekend. He was saying that, you know, we, I guess the last episode of this show, Dave, we were talking about things being a little too aggressive and Valentino Rossi had mentioned after the, the Franco and Morbidelli collision everyone coming through from Moto3 these days because there's such parity in the regulations so many machines across all the junior categories are so equal that we're seeing this crazy aggression and tiny part of this aggression is because as Davizioso, as Soner have said in the past, yeah, you make a mistake at a lot of the corners now on certain circuits, Red Bull Ring being one of them, and you simply run off onto a bit of, of tarmac, turn around and get back onto the circuit. You know, there's not crazy punishments there. Whereas if there's grass, uh, then there is. 
Uh, it's it's a tough one to say. It really is. Um, however, I think we can all agree that, uh, that the consistency hasn't quite been there. Um, should Espargaro have been given uh, one place penalty? He was forced there because on the on the outside of Miller, you know, he didn't really have a didn't really have a choice to go there. Once he decided that he was going to sort of stay on the outside, so um, and there's there's just no way you can say that he gained a uh, gained an advantage. I mean, sure, I completely understand Joan Mir um, feeling aggrieved. Um, feeling that he could have had a chance at uh, a, a podium, um, but I think Joanne Mir was already feeling very, very aggrieved because of just the whole situation. So uh, and and you know missing out on a win because he should have won, he, he should have won that race. So um, yeah, and also one more thing slightly unrelated to this. Now that I'm talking about Joanne Mir, we said we've already talked about what was it uh, eleven different names on the podium or something, and this was an unusual podium with uh, Oliveira, uh, Miller, and uh, uh, Mir. Espargaro. Um, but if uh, sorry, and, uh, Espargaro. Uh, but if you think of if the first race had finished in the in the order that um, uh, that it had been when it was red flagged, again you would have had uh, Mir. Miller and Nakagami on the podium. So absolutely fascinating. It's just that it is, everything is so open. Interesting stuff as always, David. Uh, very interesting stuff indeed. Now uh, let's get to the final and most interesting part of the show. Some people might believe. And that is the winners and losers section from the Styrian GP. You know how this works. David and I both choose a winner and a loser from the weekend. And we discuss why we have made those decisions. Uh, so, I'm going to let you, being the gentleman that I am, go first. Your big winner from the Austrian Grand Prix. You are a gentleman, and really, because you're you keep hosting the show, I should let you go uh, go first one time, but uh, not this time because I'm not that nice of a person. Um, I am going to choose KTM because I mean, you know, they had two bikes on the podium. They had a pole position. They had all four bikes in the top ten. They had Ika Lika, you know, Lekuona having a really, really good ride. Brad Binder um, coming through the field in the first race, uh, looking, you know, like he could have been sort of not quite podium bound, but uh, again, a really strong race. Their 2021 factory lineup uh, both have um, victories. The bike is. As we were saying, people, idiots like us, are saying that KTM is the best bike on the grid. And also, they won a race at their home Grand Prix. So how can you not say KTM? I'm going to go with a KTM-themed answer, and that's uh, Hervé Poncherel, because um, people questioned his judgment whenever he decided that the uh, when it was the start of 2018 he said that he was going to sever his ties with Yamaha for the first time since what 2000 or 1999 in fact it was when Olivier Jacques and uh, Shinya Nakano were running Yamaha in the Yamaha's in the 250 class switched to KTM for 2019 in the MotoGP class they also did the same in Moto2 it was not a great year it was a desperate year in Moto2 it was there were some high points in Miguel Oliveira's rookie season. He had a decent opener in Qatar. He had a really good race in Argentina. He had a good race in Austria as well. But then the crash at Silverstone. I mean, Hafi Siren had a, had a tough year too. Um, yet this year, I mean, yeah, as you said, Lecuona was inside the top 10. Um, he seems to have put that early crashing speed behind him. And Miguel Oliveira has been, well... The revelation of the season um, and Hervé Poncherel for the first time since entering the the MotoGP class uh, has a, a race win to his name finally 
after coming so close on several occasions. Well, worth saying that um, if you look at their riders in Moto3 as well, I mean, both Sasaki and uh, and Onchu are looking really, really good. Now, they had a absolute shocker of a race in um, in the Moto3 on, on Sunday where um, Onchu managed to take out his teammate, which is not what you want at all. But they've both been very, very competitive and very, very fast. So, yeah, it's just all that is going to be a good year for Tech3. I mean, yeah, they, they deserve it. Yes, absolutely. First win since, well, I make it Jack's win at Phillip Island in 2000, the final race of 2000, which uh, won him the championship. So, yeah, pretty good uh, pretty good time. And hearing Hervé speak after the race, I think he said to, to BT Sport, uh, I was contemplating quitting. It was going from one of the worst days of my career to suddenly the best, absolute best day of my career in a handful of hours. So, uh Pretty tumultuous times done in that KTM garage, but ending on such a high note, I have to say, Hervé Poncheral for the uh, yeah for the winner for the weekend. Uh, I'm going to go first for the loser, and I'm going to have to say, well, Joanne Mir. I mean, just because you know, for him to have come away from Austria on a Suzuki with a second and first place would have been just exceptional. And had that happened, I think we would have all been speaking on this show about just what an exceptional young rider we would have been patting ourselves on the back because we've been bigging Mir up for so long but to have that taken away from him in such a way was was pretty cruel um, and I'm not saying that any of this is Joanne's fault you know it's just the, the kind of circumstances but yeah he's definitely the big loser from what he had to, to basically gain to what he eventually had uh, I thought that was a real kick in the kick in the nuts for him so yeah Joanne Mir is my big loser and you know what I actually thought he, he still rode considering he was on a, a used front tire and the other guys roll on pretty much new fronts he, he still rode a brilliant race in the second part yeah, I mean, he still finished. Yeah, he still finishes fourth. You know, uh, I mean, the, the the only disagreement I would have with you there. Normally, when you talk about you know the biggest loser, it would be someone who did really, really badly. And Mir had a fantastic weekend. I mean, you know, it was he rode superbly. The bike is really good. Everything. It's just that the results weren't quite there. You know, like he finished fourth, and we're talking like a fourth as if it's a, it was a disappointment, and it is a disappointment because he should have won the race um, so yeah, I can I can sort of get where you're coming from, but it's a, it's it's an unusual choice um, whereas I shall be a, a good deal more um, conventional, much more conventional, um, although I've, I've, I've got to say it's quite it's a bit of a toss up between Fabio Quartararo and Maverick Vinales but in the end I think I've got to go for Maverick Vinales because he stuck with these old calipers and ended up sticking his uh, bike in the um, uh, bike in the wall. Um, it caught fire. Uh, these engines are made for crashing. I mean, if you think about it, Morbidelli's bike was a mess after um, after his crash uh, last week in Austria one, uh, and yet he raced that engine in Austria two. That's how um, robust these engines are. They're made, they're, they're, they're made to be crashed. Um, but this was crashed at high speed and then it managed to catch fire and fire is never is never a good thing uh, for, for an engine so we shall because I mean you know the fire itself is bad and then they put all of these chemicals all over it to try and put it out uh, which can uh, be quite corrosive and a very bad uh, a, a very bad for, for stuff so I think poor choices um, he was already in a poor uh, uh, in a poor position despite the fact that actually you know during practice he had some decent pace during practice and during the first part of the race 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, exactly. I mean, there was the, the, there was some of his lap times were superb. It's just that he couldn't make them consistently, uh, consistently because he didn't have the brakes. Um, so yeah, this is it, it. Just seems like poor choices and poor manner and poor management of himself and of his expectations and perhaps also his crew chief not telling him uh, listen Maverick do you want to end up in the wall or do you want to finish some races and grab some points um, so yeah I'm going to I'm going to have to go with Maverick Vinales as tempting as it is to say Fabio Quartararo because Fabio Quartararo finished 13th on that note David I think uh, we're going to bring this little show to an end it's been an action packed three weeks I'm surprised that I still have the uh, still have the strength of mind to, to do a podcast on motorbike racing David uh, my mind is, is, has been on the beach all day basically but uh, yeah a fantastic uh, weekend of action to get through thank you very much mr david emmett for joining me once again on this uh their paddock pass podcast thank you very much neil and i do feel um uh i, I don't think people quite do realize quite how stressful it's been for you being away from home and the the paddock normally the paddock is fantastic you know we all look forward to actually going to the races because it's uh lively exciting it's fun you're mixing with people and you're getting up close to some of the most exciting things in the world and now you are basically sitting in the media center all day not allowed to talk to anyone um and uh spending all the, all that time on your own or, or it's just it's it's quite a miserable um uh, experience i mean you've still got the best job in the world it's just that um it's the in the worst possible form <laughs> yeah i would say you're maybe overstating it ever so slightly um but yeah it's it's compared to normal circumstances yeah it's a bit rubbish but in general it could be worse as nikki it could be worse as nikki hayden said it's not digging ditches <laughs> so uh yes so on that note i think it's time to uh, to buy out um it's been a it's been another interesting show in my opinion um I hope that you have felt the same way, dear listener. Um, it's a good time to remind you of the various social media platforms on which we are operating. Twitter at paddockpasspod, facebook.com forward slash paddockpasspodcast. And David, we have a Patreon page. We do have a Patreon page, uh, patreon.com slash paddockpasspodcast. Um, uh, I suspect that we will be doing a uh, read a Patreon questions uh, episode in the next week or two. So if you have questions, do send them to us and we shall uh, try to get to them and answer everything you want to know about, about MotoGP. But you will have to uh, sign up to become a Patreon which costs as little as $3 a month. Well worth your money if you're, uh, if, uh, if I'm being honest with you. Until next week, I guess, uh, dear listener, we do have World Superbikes, of course, upcoming at Aragon, uh, which will be pretty interesting. That's going to be the fourth round of the World Superbike season. It's been a pretty uh, interesting championship so far. Scott Renning, Jonathan Ray, Top Rack Raz, Gaddy Oglu, Alex Lowe's, Mickey van der Mark. I mean, there's lots going on there. Steve English and uh, Gordon Rich, who will be coming at you next week with a pretty interesting show from Aragon. Until the next show in which David and I are in, we bid you goodbye. Bye. Yeah, I think that was quite good. Okay, so shall we just go into winners and losers and then fuck, fuck right off? Yeah, aye, that's a right fucking good idea. That is that, Neil.